0: Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan. An in-depth look at our industry from our very own chief medical officer who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside. And now, live from Zero Studios, our very own infectious disease expert with a contagious personality, Dr. Stan Schwartz.
1: Good morning, Stan. Good
2: morning, Courtney. I hope you're staying, staying safe and staying socially isolated as much as possible.
1: Absolutely. I'd also like to introduce Dr. Keith Smith. Keith, tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: Hi, um, <clears throat> and thank you all for having me. Um, I'm an anesthesiologist and I co-founded the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. It's an outpatient surgery center that's had all of our bundled prices online uh, now for I think 12 years and uh, many zero card um, Members have have benefited from this as all of their out of pocket is waived if they make the right decision and avoid one of the price gouging hospitals. So we have, we're seeing patients from all over the United States and even outside of the country and have been for years now, because uh, we put our prices online, and we're, we're fortunately not alone. Um, there's a, a whole group of us now under the banner of the Free Market Medical Association that have followed really the same strategy. So I'm, that that's briefly my, my background, and I think why you all have me here. And once again, I appreciate being here.
1: Absolutely, we're so glad to have you. Thank you for joining us. Okay, let's make the best use use of our time and dive into some questions. I'd like to get started by asking what is something new this week that we didn't know about last week. We'll start with Stan, then go to Keith.
2: Thank you, Courtney. Well, two things are really interesting in the last week. The first is that we're now recognizing that children may get a late syndrome a late illness after getting coronavirus even if they don't seem to get the usual respiratory sickness with it and that condition is called pediatric multi-system inflammatory syndrome a long name it's similar to another rare pediatric condition called kawasaki disease but basically kids week two three weeks or more after getting coronavirus may get a high fever a rash all over uh, intestinal problems like abdominal pain, and they can get kidney, but more importantly, heart problems where the heart actually stops functioning well. It's this is really new information. Been about 80 cases now in New York, and the CDC is now starting an alert for around the country. The second thing we're recognizing is that we thought coronavirus was mostly a respiratory infection, <clears throat> but it looks like it 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 gets into other organs like kidney, heart, like I mentioned with kids. And some of the scientists are now feeling that there's actually the virus affects blood vessels throughout the body. So stay tuned, but this is not just a simple respiratory infection.
1: Wow. That's crazy. Keith, anything to add on that?
3: Yeah, I I think what's new in the last couple of weeks is that uh, patients are actually becoming more comfortable um, with, with what's going on and they're getting out more. They're certainly uh, getting out to have surgery more uh, many people were um, Had put off procedures, surgical procedures that they've needed uh, for months now and we're seeing more and more of those patients. Um, the other thing is the surgeons are becoming um, less and less uncomfortable uh, in the operating room. They're there were some early reports out of China from um, ear, nose and throat uh, doctors that have been uh, completely debunked now. Uh, the, the Society of Otorhinolaryngologists has discovered that one of the early reports that sinus and nasal and throat surgery resulted in a plume of virus in the operating room was simply the result of a mistranslation from the Chinese. Uh, when asked if they would issue a retraction uh, they refu- the people that published this report refused. So there's a lot of information that's coming out that's actually very positive. That the risks uh, to healthcare personnel, uh, particularly people in the operating room, are not nearly as high as we thought that they were. So I would expect that uh, we'll begin to see more of a return to normal. Uh, we look almost completely normal at our place, not quite. Yeah, but we look almost completely normal at our place outside of just some initial screening of patients.
1: Oh my gosh, there's so many facets to this. Thanks for sharing. Uh, Next question comes from Sam. Hearing a lot about the second wave and that it's going to be a really bad winter. What are your thoughts on that? We'll start with Keith and then we'll go to Stan.
3: Yeah, I I think it's hard to predict. I think virologists uh, have been, have been wrong many, many times in the past in their predictions about how epidemics are going to spread and, and quantifying uh, these epidemics. So I think it's, it, it, there may be some hubris involved when the virologists are, are predicting and quantifying uh, what, what this disease looks like. I know the models uh, that it initially were relied on uh, have been largely debunked. Uh, and so I, I think it's just very hard to predict. I think there's a lot of uncertainty uh, I think um, anybody that says that they a- absolutely know something right now, um, I, I, don't, I I don't know that they can say that. There's just so much uncertainty right now. It's it's difficult to make uh, decisions with knowledge that that we don't have.
1: Wow. Stan, anything to add to
3: that? Yeah. You know,
2: usually during the wintertime when we have influenza, uh, doctors start seeing more and more and more cases. And at some point, you know, you start saying, well, you know, not everybody who has influenza needs to get that rapid influenza screen. And what we look for during the influenza season are people that really need to have treatment early with the anti-influenza drugs or people that get pneumonia as a result of bacterial pneumonia as a result of influenza. I think what people are worried about this year is we're throwing another common or, or possibly common infection in. So, The decision points are gonna change. You know, is it COVID? Is it influenza? If we really do have a, a bad influenza season, and what to do, and I think at that point, we're going to need really readily accessible testing to be sure that we have it right, and that the influenza patients get the drugs that we know work, and the COVID patients get whatever treatment at that time we know works, and, we hope we don't get co-infections where they both occur at the same time. You know, this is gonna be the first year, so there's no playbook for this right now.
1: Absolutely, great point. As a reminder, please use the Q&A feature to ask your questions. Next question comes from Alice. Kids are starting to get sick in a different way from adults with COVID-19. What do you think is causing this? And how should, we treat, how should we treat children differently than we did when we thought they were safer from it? We'll start with stand first, and then we'll go to keep.
2: Well, two things. The first is that you know, <clears throat> kids were thought to be you know, at very little peril due to the coronavirus, because most of them don't get sick. And when they do get sick, it's mild. And that's true for the majority of children. What we recognize now is this multi-system inflammatory syndrome that I mentioned earlier, which is a late manifestation after COVID infection. And it may actually be part of the body's immune system to it, the immune system gone wild, if you will. I think it underscores two points. Number one is, if you have a choice, it's probably best right now to not get COVID until we have some effective treatment. I think we need to be less cavalier about you know, the risk to children. And the second is, if kids do get COVID, or they develop these symptoms of fever, abdominal pain, uh, and the skin rash, they really need to, to contact their physician quickly because there may be things that can help reduce the severity of that and prevent the cardiac problems from taking place because the big risk was cardiac arrest.
3: Absolutely. Any,
1: anything on that, Keith?
3: Yeah, I'm I'm not familiar enough with the pathogenesis of this newly described, if it is newly described, um, issue to comment.
1: Gotcha. Absolutely understand. Next question comes from David. And it's a question that's been on, I know, lots of parents' minds. Will kids return to school in the fall? We'll start with Stan and then we'll go to Keith.
2: Again, I think that decision is going to be really hard to predict. Everything is changing right now. You know, we're relaxing the guidelines as far as staying at home and so forth. And it will take, you know, four, six, eight, ten weeks for things to ramp up if we do have more infections or to see that we're doing the right thing. You know, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, kids are at less risk. But kids don't drive themselves to school. They don't drive the school buses. They don't cook the meals. They don't teach the classes. So wherever kids are, there are adults, and some of them are going to be at risk. I think we'll be looking at different ways of teaching kids, You know, depending on where you are and how severe the outbreak is and so forth. There's going to have to be a little bit of customization to how we teach, I believe. I could be totally
3: wrong.
1: Keith, anything from you?
3: Yeah, I I agree with Stan. It's very unpredictable. Uh, There's not a playbook for this. And it it probably will be more of a function of how comfortable parents are uh, with their kids going back to school uh, than otherwise. But I I don't think there's any way to predict um, how this will unfold as far as the schools are concerned in the fall.
1: Absolutely agree with you next question comes in from will my doctor said i need a shoulder surgery when is it safe to get the surgery as i'm in a lot of pain we'll start with keith on this one and then move to stan for some additional insight
3: well the answer is the answer is now uh, and you know the way we proceed at this point is talking to patients a day or two uh, typically two days before surgery to see you know what if any kind of exposure or symptoms they've had uh, if there's any question at all, then we we make sure that they're uh, tested with with the best tests that we have now, even though it has terrible flaws and, and that's the uh, PCR nasal swab. Um, a lot of people are doing antibody testing uh, at this point, but that doesn't doesn't give you as good of a snapshot about real time um, contagious uh, conditions so if the patient is asymptomatic and has not had exposure, hasn't traveled internationally, then uh, they can have their surgery right now. Um, we have we have openings this afternoon, but we would like like to talk to them before before they make the trip.
1: Absolutely, Stan. Anything from you?
3: I think Keith has really ca- encapsulated
2: it very well.
1: Perfect. Thank you. Uh, this one comes in from an anonymous. I recently read an article that outlined COVID-19 could become endemic, much like HIV. This was supposedly announced by the WHO. What are your thoughts on the possibility? We'll start with Stan, and then we'll go to Keith.
2: You know, again, it's always hard to predict the future, as someone once said. But I think there's a good likelihood that it will continue. We know the virus is very contagious. We know that the vast majority of humans on this planet are not immune to it and have never seen this virus before. So unlike influenza, where if you've had influenza in the past, your body has some memory of it, even if it's a different influenza strain, I think it'll be likely that we'll see some degree of activity. And I hope that you know testing, contact tracing, and quarantining when necessary will actually work. Uh, I agree with Dr. Fauci. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Hopefully it'll be at a level of activity that is no longer a problem and can be
3: contained.
1: Absolutely. Keith, anything to add from your end?
3: Yeah, I I think that we have to be careful listening to, once again, the predictions and the forecasting and the quantification of the virologists, uh, even Dr. Fauci. Um, back in the late 80s and early 90s, we have to remember that we were all told by the CDC, uh, Dr. Fauci, and, and the current head of the CDC, that HIV would kill uh, one in five heterosexuals in the United States. So they they were not discredited at that time, but they certainly were not discouraged from making um, very dire predictions uh, all through the years. So I, I just think we there is so much uncertainty and we have to be very careful um, what what we believe from from even some of these people that are at the top because the the virologists really have and the epidemiologists have a terrible history of being wrong uh, and and predicting the most dire things that rarely materialize.
1: Absolutely, thank you for both of your insight. Next question coming in from new. How do we avoid getting COVID-19 from asymptotic people?
2: I think I can answer that question. How do you avoid getting it for asymptomatic people? Keep in mind that probably the bottom of the iceberg and not the tip are people who don't have symptoms or have symptoms so mild they're not recognized as COVID. That is the absolute classic reason for social distancing and avoiding situations where you're in contact with folks who are coughing, sneezing in closed, poorly ventilated areas. Social distancing is clearly the most important thing that we can do if we don't know who we're with as possibly infected.
1: Anything to add on that, Keith?
3: Yeah, I'm, I saw a study the other day that uh, said that there uh, is a very, very low a chance that an asymptomatic carrier who is is truly asymptomatic, meaning just as Stan said, they're not coughing or sneezing, uh, that person is, is very unlikely to transmit that disease to someone who is close to them. And it was a pretty good study. On the other hand, there are studies that show just the opposite. So I'm I'm still unclear, even uh, even about the studies of what risk uh, asymptomatic carriers uh, present to everyone in the public, but I mean, wash your hands. That's the biggest thing. Um, wearing a mask is even controversial and people changing their minds every day um, how dynamic the situation is and uh, cannot be overstated, and it's changing. It's just as Stan said, it's changing every day, every other day. There's new information that just leaves your head spinning, and you think, "Well, wait, you know that that's not what I understood two days ago." So, I'm, you know, just like with the flu, I think the most important thing is, is for people to you know really wash their hands, that and you know not not contact their own face, uh, certainly not anyone else's. That just basic common sense.
1: Absolutely. You guys have a big job. Uh, this question comes in from Carrie. My teenage daughter has an ENT surgery scheduled for the end of May. An ENT practice will do a swab test two days prior to the surgery. What questions should we be asking? Any tips or advice for us? We'll start with Stan and then go to Keith.
2: You know, I, I Actually, I'd like to let Keith take that one first because... He's running the place that
3: does ENT surgery. There you go. Well, our our approach has actually been to perform the swab uh, more than two days uh, before the surgery. Uh, Initially, the Oklahoma State Department of Health said you needed a a negative PCR swab test within 48 hours of the scheduled surgery. But um, it was very, very difficult to get the swab and get the results back in that time frame. What was more important was after the swab uh, that the patient we were going to operate on did not have any new contacts. So as long as they were Kind of semi quarantined after the swab um, it didn't matter to us if the test was even a week old. So um, I, I, this, this is hard for me to say that I have to give the state health department credit um, they are not an organization that ever deserves credit. For anything, but I am going to give them credit for this. They, um, they're, they're heavy-handed and they're bureaucratic, but they did the right thing in this case, and they, they changed their requirement to a guideline and uh, recognized that a test, as uh, even a week old, was still valid as long as there was some reasonable degree of quarantining. So, so that's our approach. Um, the nasal swab is not pleasant. Initially, the, most of the ENT surgeons wanted a, a negative nasal swab, and then two days later, they wanted another negative nasal swab because of the, the False negatives uh, that came along with this test um, because of some of the uh, because some of the information that came out of China That I believe was transmitted to all of us uh, through ENT doctors at Stanford because so much of that has been debunked now. That uh, one single PCR uh, swab is typically uh, what the ear, nose, and throat surgeons are doing for uh, for surgery, and I think that um, I think as early as this summer we might even see uh, that relaxed to where, where that's not used uh, unless unless patients are in some very vague way symptomatic. Okay.
1: Anything to add on that, Stan?
2: Yeah. One thing I would add is that the FDA has just approved the first what we call antigen test. You know, all the swab tests on the nose right now uh, work by a complex uh, mechanism of, of, of amplifying, as we say, the, the, the genetic code of the virus. So the tests take time and they take really pretty exquisitely sophisticated equipment. But this new test an antigen test, uh, can be run very much like a rapid flu screen, like you get in the doctor's office or a rapid strep screen. And as long as this test turns out not to have a lot of false negatives, in other words, it doesn't miss a lot of people that have an active infection, this may make a really big difference in getting you know, people reassured, getting you know, the, the, the surgery places reassured. And I see that as a potential breakthrough depending on how well the test works because it gives results basically on the spot.
1: Absolutely, hope that answers your question, Carrie. Moving on, uh, next question comes in from Anonymous. If I am needing hip surgery, is it best to go to a hospital like I normally would? I'm worried because most hospitals seem to have COVID patients. Great question, let's start with Keith and then we'll go to Stan.
3: You know, I predicted a year ago <clears throat> that 2020 would be the year that one of the major carriers, uh, Blue Cross, United, Cygna, Aetna, uh, would actually desire uh, to work with independent facilities uh, like mine rather than shun uh, independent facilities in favor of their old pals at the big hospital systems. Um, I think that. Patients increasingly are going to have, and I think appropriately, uh, the concern about, you know, what is the environment in which I'm placing myself when I have a surgical procedure and is it safe? Uh, The infection rates um, before any of this COVID stuff came up, the infection rates at independent surgery centers or physician-owned hospitals are vastly lower Uh, than the infection rates for the very same procedures at hospitals where nosocomial infections are more uh, more common. I think that patients are going to see um, this COVID stain uh, on a hospital and maybe that representing some risk to them uh, for their elective surgery. I don't I think that that's logical and I think that's appropriate. And I think it will create a a pressure uh, on on the carriers really to to maybe readjust their thinking and their vision and and not stand by their kind of good old boy arrangement with the hospitals and actually allow uh, some people who are appropriately concerned to have their surgery at, a, at an independent facility
1: absolutely anything to add there stan
2: no i think that says it about as well as i would
1: okay all right moving in to moving on to a question from chris What would you think if we would quarantine the sick instead of almost everybody? Of course, we should encourage those that are high risk to stay at home. First, we'll go to Stan, then we'll go to Keith.
2: You know, it's a great idea, but the science just doesn't point us in that direction. If we quarantined everybody who was sick, we would only be quarantining a, a fraction of the people who actually have the COVID infection because you know, as I said before, it looks like the majority of them are either going to be very minimally symptomatic, you don't even know you have that particular infection, or no symptoms at all. So quarantining is a good idea, but if, it's, if it can be combined with lots of testing and contact tracing, then it can be infect- effective but to just quarantine people because they're sick, we're we're that's just not going to get us to where we want to go.
1: Keith, anything to add to that from your end?
3: Yeah, I'm just a little counterpoint and pushback a little bit. I'm probably a little bit on the other side uh, of that question. Um, this is the first time in human history that uh, healthy people have been quarantined, and so this is a. This is a radical departure, and it is uh, it has assassinated uh, the economy of the United States and many other countries. So, I think that that the decision to quarantine healthy people also has to take into account many many other factors. And it, and I think that the burden of proof really is on those who would inflict that on the country. And um, I'm also I also have a hard time reading studies out of Taiwan and Sweden uh, where where the information shows that lockdowns don't make any difference at all. It doesn't matter whether you lock down at all. So, you know, every day, every two days, there's a new study, there's new information, and it just leaves your head spinning because, uh, you know, the science will say, scientists will say one thing on one day and they'll say another thing on another. Um, but I think, that, I think that we have to keep in mind um, what what the unseen uh, Disaster is. I read this morning there were more suicides in Tennessee than there were deaths from COVID nineteen. So there's there's a real carnage that has to be taken to into account uh, when when you start quarantining healthy people. So yeah, that, that that's probably my response to that.
1: Absolutely great insight from you both. Next question comes from Jill when can my husband and i go out to a dinner go out to a restaurant first we'll start with stan then we'll go to keith you
2: know i think that's a really good question and you know it's all what we call a risk calculation now i'll take my car out driving any day of the week but i won't drive when two times when it's icy outside or on new year's eve when i know the risk increases it's the same thing with this calculation about going to a restaurant. If I were 25 years old, I were very healthy. I was going to a restaurant seating outside that the servers were wearing masks and I was, you know, a nice breeze that I knew would dispel any virus particles from people talking. I would have no qualms about going to a restaurant. If I were 80 years old and I were going into a crowded restaurant where the tables are right next to each other and nobody was using any precautions, i'd probably skip that so everybody needs to make their own kind of risk calculation and get to their own comfortable sweet spot and you know if you're worried does my health condition make me a little more susceptible to a severe complication that's a good time to have a chat with the doc with your own doc perfect thank you
1: for that answer next question comes from james do you think it's a good idea for employers to require employees to quarantine for 14 days if they travel out of state. First we'll go to Stan, then we'll go to Keith. You no,
2: know, I think that kind of kind of emphasizes what Keith mentioned just a bit ago is that quarantine is a very blunt instrument. If it's simply used because we have nothing better. If we had good testing available, we could test that individual every one or two days, you know. I'd be fine to have that person come back to work we just don't have that right now. So if I had somebody that was going to a very concentrated area like you know one of the hot spots now that are developing around the country and they were flying on an airplane with two flights I'd probably want them to be working at home for as long as it's possible or if they do come back to work you know to isolate from other people and wear a mask because a mask doesn't protect you but it protects, it protects the people who are around somebody who might be potentially infected. It's a, it's a tough calculation that every employer needs to make for them for their own place to business. Absolutely.
1: Anything to add to that, Keith, before we wrap up for today?
3: No, I, I would agree with Stan. Uh, it's, it's very individualized uh, in their Every individual has to make their own sort of risk-benefit calculations, and and that would go for that situation for that employer and employee as well. I agree with Stan.
1: Perfect. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Um, We sincerely hope that having access to an expert in the field has been a valuable resource to you all as we navigate the impacts of COVID-19. For more information, including a chat capability, Where questions are answered live, please visit thezerocard.com forward slash COVID-19. Let me repeat this, thezerocard.com forward slash COVID-19. On behalf of Dr. Stan Swartz, Chief Medical Officer, and myself, Courtney DeWitt, Sales Executive at The Zero Card, along with our guest, Dr. Keith Smith, We thank you and we hope to see you again next week at the same time and same place. Take care and stay healthy.
0: We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out.